number one here, power of the spirit. Uh, power of the spirit over human weakness is for people's uh, belief or is a testimony to God's power. So the power that the spirit has over our weakness is primarily uh, a tool that the spirit uses as a testimony to God's power and God's greatness. So, and, and by power, I'm talking primarily about how we think about instantaneous and sensational and amazing power, okay? Not just overall power here. Uh, because one of the things that, uh, that I've noticed in my research and understanding of uh, the Pentecostalism movement uh, and, and spiritual things of all kinds, people have had a really tough time navigating the waters of does the Spirit primarily do really amazing and miraculous things among us? Or is his status quo, the mundane, behind-the-scenes work? And we tend towards having one emphasis or the other. And so if we're going to try to kind of determine, well, what is it that the Spirit does on a day-to-day -day basis? And is it of the miracle, amazing variety or the more mundane? Uh, we've got to kind of go back to the Scripture to see where these instances are and, and what the Spirit's doing in each kind. I think the easy answer is we'll say, well, both, but then the question becomes, well, do we experience both in our daily lives? Well, it's easy to say we experience the mundane aspects of the Spirit working because it doesn't take too much of us to just say, yeah, He's working. But for those of us who haven't experienced anything miraculous, whatever that means, we'll try to talk about it, maybe that one's a little bit more difficult uh, to kind of pin down and to understand. So, yeah, you know there's not a card swiper because my phone's in my pocket. Uh, for those of you visiting today, we are really informal and unorganized, just in general. But when Leslie is gone, things hit the fan, okay? <laughs> no one knows what they're doing. Everyone just asks questions. Leslie is sort of like the foundation of our uh, organization around here. And so when she's gone, things uh, get, get bad. So I'm sure somewhere there's that little plug-in swiper thing. I should be using my phone, but... I just don't want to do it. So, you know, give online, double up next week. All right. <laughs> We're working on getting one of those little PayPal things that you can just use without a card, but I don't think you can write a little note on it. Do you, do you guys write a lot of notes when you give? You know, like really encouraging messages to us? Uh, dedicating it to certain things. I don't know. I think we're going to get that from now on. So it's just one of those handheld. I'm talking way too much about giving technology, okay? Um, yes, great. We'll just go ahead and, uh, and miss a, a week of those of you who, you know, get more debt on your credit card to give to the church. Um, it's a joke. I'm trying to encourage you not to do that. Don't do that. Bad, bad, bad. Yeah, okay, well, shouldn't be. I'll, I'll say it again. You shouldn't be, if you're giving out of debt, you're not actually giving your money. You're giving someone else's money. And I'm not so sure you should be in the position to be giving other people's money, all right, unless they've tasked you with that. Okay. So, um, yeah, power of the Spirit. I think when I look through these powerful manifestations of the Spirit, mighty deeds, 
Uh, I'm convinced, uh, like some Pentecostals have, have argued, that these uh, sensational and amazing events were primarily done so people could believe in God and understand uh, that, that Jesus himself was an authentic man of God. And it's primarily interesting to me that when some of the Pharisees, the people who were seen as more mature in their faith, asked for miracles, Jesus gave them none, okay? And to me, that suggests that sensational and uh, amazing works of the Spirit are at least at their kind of core uh, used as an instrument to bring people who really otherwise don't believe in God into the fold, see something that's really amazing or uh, uh, remarkable so as to kind of in a moment challenge what they believe about the world. Now, is that to say that that's the only way it works? No, because certainly in Paul's churches, uh, the Spirit was doing some really miraculous things throughout their experience so as to build up the church. But I think primarily when you look at some of these manifestations, they seem to be targeted at people who otherwise uh, weren't kind of in tune with what God was doing. And it kind of jogged them out of uh, their worldview and their understanding. So I'm just gonna throw that out there because I think that's a really important filter in which to look at some of the Spirit's work, uh, particularly sensational work. So what do I mean by miracles? Well, um, this word can be as vague and as broad as you want it to. Too many people have used miracle, the word miracle in a way to mean pretty much anything good, uh, which I think is not how we ought to use it. Um, miracles in the scripture seem to target particularly physical illnesses um, and to some degree mental illnesses or spiritual infirmities, things like evil spirits and things like that. But to say that there's somehow just someone slowly and gradually changing their mind over something is something probably a little bit more akin to the spirit just working in ordinary ways of renewing a Christian mind. But not to say that the spirit is working a miracle in their life, which tends to have the connotation of something pretty out of the ordinary, pretty supernatural, pretty sensational. All right? Yeah. Um, probably something that I shouldn't have used. Uh, more complicated than it is. Just physical problems. Ailments, infirmities, pretentious words for just issues. <laughs> uh, so uh, I think we have to see uh, the spirits working in, in those ways as well, certainly having the ability to heal our physical illnesses, all right? And there've been a lot of documented cases of people uh, having medical illnesses that just sort of disappeared, um, things that were really against scientific explanation. In fact, there's some places that apparently people can go. And you know, let's be honest, most of us are decently skeptical, or at least I am, and uh, we're probably, unless we see it and then prove it and test it over and over again, aren't gonna be able to believe this kind of stuff happens on a normal or regular basis. Of course, the third world or the developing world doesn't have near the kind of problems that we do in understanding the supernatural uh, because they claim to experience it all the time and in their worldview have just a lot more room 
to address uh, this sort of unseen and uh, invisible world. So miracles, I think to really kind of use a, a biblical definition of miracle, we've got to see three things primarily. Number one is the healing of physical illnesses, which I'm going to include mental illnesses or cognitive illnesses as being physical illnesses. They're illnesses with the brain, so they're uh, physical cognitive illnesses. Okay? The second one, which I think is focused on a whole lot less, but is equally elevated as a miracle, is people having extreme joy in the midst of affliction. So extreme joy and an ability to deal with incredibly physically painful and emotionally painful things with the joy that God gives them. And it's really miraculous because um, there's no real reason they should do that. There's no real rational or it, it just doesn't make sense. And I think following that, the third one, which is super vague and broad, uh, is sort of unlikely outcomes to certain situations. And this one we got to be really careful of because we, we run the risk of, of broadening the definition of miracles too much. Um, because if I go to Burger King, my favorite restaurant, and uh, I happen to get a second Whopper for free, that is an unlikely outcome, but is not, I assure you, a miracle, all right? Or if a parking spot at Walmart, my favorite place to shop, uh, opens up within the first, I don't know, 10 rows in any lane, then although it's an unlikely outcome, again, not a miracle. So, uh, yeah, unlikely outcomes. I mean, these are things that you see a trajectory of a life or of a decision, and then all of a sudden, again, for no explainable reason, um, something different happens. And it is really miraculous, okay? So I'm gonna use those three when I talk about miracles. I'm sure there are other, that's not exhaustive. I think there's probably some other things we ought to think through, but I really wanna focus on the fact that these are uh, non-explainable uh, things that, that, that happen, that, uh, that aren't just slow and progressing. They really are a testimony to God's power over the earth and over all of the natural laws and rules that we live by, um, even social rules that we live by. One of my favorite, I guess, just accounts of miraculous things comes from a book called The Road Less Traveled by uh, Scott Peck. Um, and in his chapter that he entitles Grace, he just talks about all of the amazing, um, unexplainable phenomenon in his counseling ministry. And this is someone who, for most of his life, was uh, agnostic and really didn't have much interest in spiritual things, but had kind of a later life conversion like C.S. Lewis. And, and he just documents how his understanding of Jesus and how the Spirit works uh, makes so much sense of all of these unexplainable life things that happen. I wish I could share you one story inv uh, involving a butterfly, but I really can't remember what it was. So it would have been really easy for me just to pick the book off of the shelf and go look at it, but I didn't. I apologize. But you know, mystery is better anyway, right? So go look at the butterfly story uh, because it'll blow your mind. <laughs> Might have been a moth. I'm not going to lie. The butterfly sounds <laughs> way better. So. Probably not, so, okay, yeah. It's like a lot of work, you gotta remember, and 
But if any of you guys do, you know, because that's for me. Put it, butterfly, moth story. The title of the chapter is Grace, and he actually calls these miraculous things God's grace for people who really didn't believe in him, and God just gives them a, a gift of a miracle, and it leads them down a real different path in their relationship with God. Certainly, again, we can talk about the fact that the Spirit even pulls us into the fold of the family as miraculous, but we run the risk of, of making miracle, the, miracle uh, the word miracle too broad, okay? Um, because that's that it really applies to everyone. There certainly is no promise in the scripture, though, uh, that that's how we will enter into the fold of God through some type of miraculous experience. One of the real difficulties I have in looking through miracles in the scripture, particularly when you see how many of these miracles took place in the corporate gathering, is why aren't miracles happening here? Why aren't they happening? What's wrong? Is there something, an issue? Maybe, maybe miracles are something you should expect like once every 10 years and we're not old enough, but on our 10 year anniversary, we'll have a miracle. I don't know, but it seems like mir miracles were something that, without using the word consistent, uh, that the early Christians expected to happen in their midst. And it's always easy to say, well, it doesn't happen anymore, that was for a specific time, blah, blah, blah. But all of those arguments, I think, have floundered upon even just a small look into not only Christian history, but in, into what Paul has talked about himself, that, that these things aren't going away. They were never meant to go away. In fact, these are the hallmarks of how the Spirit works in this time and place. And there'll be no need for them in the future life because we won't need these miracles to sort of prove or see God's goodness. So my question comes back over and over again is why don't we see miracles in our corporate gatherings? And I think it's a question we all ought to think about. We really do. We just ought to think about it. What does it mean? Should they be happening? Should we be asking for them? Should we be looking for them? Uh, I guess my best answer to that is I don't see why not. Maybe make some of us uncomfortable. Uh, let me give you a few things that I think uh, are partially answers to this. Number one is we're really afraid of people faking it. And there have been, what, probably more, well, not, not probably, way more substantiated cases of people faking healings uh, or placebo-type healings or whatever than there have of substantiated healings, people really being healed medically, or those things that are substantially, uh, you know, attributed to healings are things that substantially or substantiated can only mean that we were just like, all right, we'll go with what your testimony was, because I don't know for sure that you, like, lost your depression. I mean, I don't, <laughs> not for sure how I would figure that out exactly. Um, so I think that's part of the problem is that we're really sensitive to those things being fake. But the problem is we don't really use that same standard with most anything else. Most of us are completely okay with using a whole lot of fake cliche Christian language with really no problem and no issue or no qualms. <laughs> I do it all the time. It's called preaching. Um, that should have gotten way better at the laugh. I'm just saying upset about that but you're too deep in thought to yeah okay um 
but, we, but we're, we're concerned, but we don't use that same standard with a lot of other things. So that can't fully explain why it is that we don't expect the type of miraculous things that the first church experienced. Uh, maybe the second thing is that we're super skeptical and that anything that happened even in a group like this, we, unless we could like experience it ourselves, ultimately what it would be is just a disruption to our service. Because if someone was truly healed of something without being able to like x-ray them, you know, or get a doctor to come testify to that, for the most part, we would just be skeptical of whether or not uh, it really happened. And so instead of it being a testimony to God's goodness, it would more just be a giant distraction as to what's wrong with that person. But again, we don't use that same standard on most other things. That because it, we can't verify it, someone who's been growing in faith over 10 or 20 or 30 years, we're like, prove it. Let's hear of the most recent 10 experiences you've had that show your growth. We're somehow not skeptical of that, which takes a lot more work, in my mind, of the spirit changing someone's basic personality, heart, mind, than it does for the spirit to just boop, and then your tumor's gone. So... Again, it's not completely satisfactory as an explanation for why it is we don't expect these in kind of a corporate gathering. Another one that may be a little bit too damning for us and is kind of scary is maybe we don't have enough people who are new in their faith here. So the Spirit's work would ultimately just be kind of like, a, oh, that's icing on the cake, but wouldn't actually draw anybody into the kingdom of God. That one I don't want to really ponder and think about too long. Because if the Spirit's primary role in manifesting miracles is to bring people into the fold of God, into an entry point, then why work in a church that's mostly people who've been here for a while? That one's scary. I don't want to think about that one very much, okay? Maybe our church is a little bit too programmatic and structured that those opportunities for people to really see God's power manifested beyond just the people who are loving and kind and whatever— uh, it's just not necessary here. I don't know. I can't think of really any just perfect answers to this question, but if you hear nothing else from this sermon, it's that you ought to be thinking about it as someone a part of a church gathering. Why isn't it that we experience the, the manifest presence of the Spirit in the same way that the early church did, specifically in our gatherings? What, do you think they were lying? Were they using strange illusions and euphemisms and things of that nature to kind of like communicate deep realities? Or were they just simply seeing what they saw? And I think we gotta think about that, guys, particularly as postmodern millennials are moving more and more into the land of experience and really thirsting and hungering for God to do things experientially in their life and in the gathering of the community. Uh, so I think this is, uh, is really pretty important for us to at least think through. The only other thing that I could think of, uh, I'm not going to lie to you, all right? I'm just going to tell you something that's really strange. I have had multiple times where I have, okay, and you know what? You guys are going to judge me. But that's not a problem because you know what? I know y'all got some weird stuff too that you think about. I have pictured myself probably on three or four occasions, somehow in the middle of talking, just like elevating up into the air. 
levitating at least a few feet and just seeing what your faces would do, right? <laughs> People would be up here with like sticks trying to see if there's strings or I don't know what you would be doing. Sticks? What else would you use? Your arm? I'm, I'm levitated. How are you going to use your arm? You're not going to be able to get that high. Gotta have a stick. So, um, strings, yeah. One of the things that um, that I think is is possibly another reason why we tend not to think about uh, the, or, or maybe a reason that miracles don't happen in corporate settings is because they're incredibly dangerous. Uh, for the person engaged in the miracle work, doing the miracle work. If you really look back through Paul's ministry, you see people when Paul, uh, you know, had a, a miraculous healing or something happened, people were ready to worship them as gods, you know, Peter, Paul, both of them. We have the same tendency today in a lot of Pentecostal churches to think of healers as uh, these amazing men and women of God. And yet, one of the really interesting things about healing, and I've alluded to this before in uh, this sermon series is there seems to be one rule about healers and that's that they can't heal themselves and they don't get healed themselves. It's actually really interesting. Jesus alludes to this when he talks about not being believed in his own hometown of Nazareth. And he says, you know, you'll probably quote physician heal yourself. That healing itself was never meant to substantiate someone's spiritual authority. In fact, it was exactly the opposite of that. It was meant to be a testimony to how God can even work through this weak fool. So maybe that's one of the other reasons is that, uh, you know, we would have, we would place even more emphasis on p certain people as being more spiritual or holy than others. And I caution you with that as well, to be very careful of people who claim to be working miracles or a part of miraculous ministry, if they ever use themselves as an example of spirituality and connect that somehow to doing miracles. When Simon or Nicodemus, or neither, I think it was Simon, asked to buy the, period, the, the power of putting, you know, having the spirit come on people, you see Peter's reaction to that. It was just so anti the idea of what these miraculous and instantaneous things were really for. So they're supposed to be a testimony of God's goodness. And any time our goodness gets in the way of that, then miracles aren't going to happen. When the Pharisees demanded a miracle from Jesus, he said, you perverse and corrupt generation who demand a miracle in order to believe. You're the mature. You should already know how God works. Why would you need a miracle to prove that? It's the people who don't know and, and need that authentication who need miracles from God, which I'm going to get to in just a moment. Second point here, okay? That was just one point? Oh, my goodness. Uh, And I'm going to have to kind of un, un, uh, unpack this because I'm not even sure what I think about all this. But anyway, Satan's power is about giving or God giving us freedom to come to him. Yeah. Satan's power is about God giving us freedom to come to him as in come to God. It's probably really poorly phrased. Should have seen how I had it originally. So. I'll come back to it. We, 
really, as millennials, have tough time even saying the name of Satan. And it's probably because we've watched too many insidious films or um, we've, we're terrified of the idea of the evil spirits coming on to children and innocence and probably more of this than anything has to do with horror movies. Just kidding, it doesn't. But um, we just really tend not to think about this whole world, okay? And unfortunately, we look a whole lot more like Unitarian Universalists than we do like any of the traditional denominations when we choose to ignore the scripture's discussion about Satan and hell and enemies of God and various other things. Now, I think the other extreme of that is, in my mind, this spiritual warfare idea that somehow there's just this war taking place and there's evil and there's good and, you know, we're just these pawns and this crazy, and that's just, that's definitely got to be TV and movies and things like that, or I don't know. But this dualism that was incredibly popular in Greek thought of the bad and the good has very much infiltrated Christians uh, thinking on this topic. And yet when you look at Satan and you look at his minions, uh, they are so embarrassingly and shamefully under God's control that I don't know how you would ever or could ever use the term warfare to describe the kind of relationship God has with Satan. Where do we get that idea? There's like one passage that talks about war, and it's the very passage that I mentioned when we went and talked four or five uh, weeks ago about there's no longer a fight against the flesh, where Paul is telling us the only war that took place was our war between our sinful nature and our, this sort of spiritual nature that we have in our flesh before we were Christians. And there's a war, and it took place, and now that war is done. Thanks be to God. So it's really tricky then to, to see ourselves as both Christian and as somehow still participating in this spiritual warfare that is just out there. And at any turn, you know, Satan is going to trip us up and, and do this and do that and has all these powers apparently that somehow is like God's trying to like keep up with them to figure out what Satan's new approach, you know. Um, that is in no way how the Bible portrays that relationship. Any power that Satan is given, at least according to what I can read in the scripture, ultimately always falls back into God's plan for us as humans. That he actually plays a role in that. That he doesn't see it or understand it completely or realize it is on him, but that he plays a role in that. You think about what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6 when he talks about that weird pervert who was sleeping with his stepmom and in the most strange passage, he just says, hand him over to Satan so that hopefully his soul can be saved. And you're like, what does that mean? What, how, do you, how do you do that? Why wasn't he launching into like a step-by-step -step process after that on how to hand someone over to Satan? You can't possibly just say that and then not give us instructions for how. Okay? They understood it. So you, we've got to do the unpacking to figure out what that means. So if that's the truth and that spiritual forces, whatever that looks like, and I'm not going to pretend to understand that, there's not enough in Scripture to even make sense of that. And for those of you who love to go back and read through Revelation and try to figure that stuff out, you're like, what? Why? Why are you doing this? I mean, you know, I don't know. 
really strange. They're strange people, like in Revelation. I mean, there's so much more there that speaks to how churches should interact and operate than this strange war, much of which is probably just uh, illustrations of things that were about to take place in 60 or 70 years in the fall of Jerusalem. But, or had taken place, but we're going to get only worse after that. Let me just mention a couple ideas that I have about this. Number one, Paul, in one of his most wonderful insults of Satan, talks about him as uh, the ruler of the kingdom of the air. That he thinks he rules a lot, but in reality rules nothing. Um, I think this is particularly as Christians, how we ought to think of Satan's influence in our own life. He's a ruler of the kingdom of the air. He's got no pull. He's got no control. That when we're a part of God's family, uh, it's just not a deal anymore. We've been freed from that, that back and forth, that, that, that war that so many of us still tend to think of being a part of. Now, that's not to say that somehow uh, sin gets any easier to uh, get rid of uh, in the short term or any of that. It simply means that God has now promised victory for us and is there day by day working uh, against those old patterns of thought, that old, those old rules when we were a slave to Satan and the rules of this world. Uh, and, and we ought to, to really kind of shift our thinking some on that. Because I think the focus of Satan's work is on people who do not have faith. And when Paul talks about either being a slave to obedience and Christ or a slave to the flesh or to the sin or the ruler of this world, he's talking about how people in their flesh and in their weakness will follow any old power that's stronger than them which is just about all powers because we're pretty sissies. Whether it's a social movement, whether it's a trend, whether it's whatever, we follow these spirits, forces, whatever they are that are slightly more powerful than us. And somehow in all of God's plan, and I don't know how this works, guys, I'd love to really figure it out. I think in the most reduced kind of simplistic way, I guess my way of understanding it is it's kind of like the folks that I've worked with in AA and NA. One of the real common things that you hear from people who are going through Alcoholics Anonymous or Narcotics Anonymous is they have to hit their low point before they finally realize it's time to get better. And as near as I can think, that's partially how God uses Satan and the forces of society and his spirits because they got to get people, many of them, to a place where they realize it can't get much worse than this. Even if they're not in a terrible place, so to speak, outwardly speaking, it's an inner place of recognizing this isn't who I want to be. Um, and, and Satan's way of thinking, his, his you know, uh, arrogance, his pride, his ability to manipulate and use you know, societal trends and ways of thinking, all of those ultimately serve to get people to a point where they finally are fed up with that way of life. And God somehow uses that in his discretion and his power over that. And it is not even remotely out of his control, although a lot of it we don't understand, don't like, and aren't okay with. 
but where does that, that put this whole spiritual warfare thing? Well, I think it puts it in the, in the focus of that there are forces at work and people who really haven't given their life to God that just push and pull and toss them back and forth and are outside of their control. And if we ought to be praying for these spiritual forces and for you know, things that are going on, they're primarily in people who really don't know God. And I think spiritual warfare has often been really focused on Christianity and within Christianity that I've got to pray because evil spirits are making me not want to pray or read my Bible. <laughs> no, you've been freed from that. You're just not praying and reading your Bible. You ought to pray for those people who don't even get a chance to understand the scripture or have such hard and solid ideas about how the scripture is bad that they'll never be able to read it until they've heard it from the mouth of someone they respect or trust. And you've got to open up their ears or pray that their ears would be opened up and, and that they would be, uh, you know, the other voices around them be silenced. That's my best at, uh, attempt at it, at really understanding this thing. So if we're going to talk about spiritual warfare, if we're going to talk about Satan's power, we've got to recognize that somehow still God is in control of all of this stuff, even when we don't see it. And we've got to refocus, I think, our efforts on really praying for people outside. And again, when I say outside of faith, I mean, there's plenty of people in this room now who are on the fence about this stuff. I mean, as a church community, we ought to always be welcoming and a place for people to slowly and at their pace approach God and understand him. And, and, and those forces, I think maybe there's not a day that they just stop. Certainly we can still be impacted by, you know, spiritual structural forces that lead us into certain generations of thinking um, and ways of going about things. There, there's that, that aspect to it. That's a whole other topic that I think we could talk about and think about. But we ought to be really serious in considering just how much negative and satanic uh, evil forces and spirits can impact the way people who are not in Christ can really think and do life, just like they did with us at some point. And many of us can think back to those things, whether they were sensational, supernatural, and a presence of overwhelming evil on us, or whether we just saw ourselves as doing things that really just kind of disgust us now, as Paul would say, because they just weren't right. Where in me got to that point in my life? Well, maybe it wasn't you entirely. You were drawn into a world where rules were very different. And God was saying, apart from me, this is how life works. You trust me, you don't want it. It's never gonna be good. So let me just give you sort of two closing thoughts on this and then we will uh, take communion and uh, have the praise team come on up and, and lead us through some songs. Number one, you need to believe in miracles and you need to pray for them. Always. There ought to be no reason we're not praying for miraculous healings, recoveries, joy in the midst of difficult situations or just unlikely outcomes to events that seem hopeless. No reason. And if you're not praying for them, that says more about your lack of faith in God's ability to do amazing things than anything. And... I'm not saying here that we ought to pray and then expect. This is one of the real big problems with, you know, sort of miracle movements and healing ministries. 
is all of a sudden we take the very subtle step into, well, God must only heal those people who have faith enough to believe or who have done enough good in their life to be at this point. And if I'm not being healed and I'm not being, you know, um, oh, given comfort, then somehow I've done something wrong. It's just so not what the scripture is saying. Not only because joy and affliction is just as much as a miracle as, you know, an affliction going away, as Paul would say, with a thorn is in his, in his flesh. But because it's often through those weak moments that somehow we have most ability to see God actually working and be able to believe in him. And so we've got to be very careful. I've certainly been around healing ministries where people have maybe not outright said it, but have suggested that your healing is directly connected to your faith in God, whether or not you're gonna be healed. But people who are much more mature and understanding, they are great going either way. Just as Paul would say, I'm ready to leave, but I'll stay here for your benefit. So we gotta be really careful about that, but we need to believe in miracles and we need to pray for them. And thankfully, as post, uh, modernism has given way to postmodernism, more and more of us are open to some of those ideas that God can work in ways uh, that are really miraculous, okay? And I think number two is we've got to see the Spirit's power as testimony for those who don't really know God. Rather than being so selfish with our requests and ask, asking for the Spirit to manifest Himself in our lives in obvious ways, we ought to be praying that prayer for people who really could use a miracle in their life who could use a manifestation of spirit's power so that they could be brought into the fold of God. Because to me, that's really kind of what Jesus was doing from place to place. As as he did miracles, he was bringing in people who otherwise would have just not seen themselves as a part of God's work. The fact that they even got to witness a miracle was really, really amazing. But you think about how often, guys, he told people, don't tell anybody what happened. Why would he do that? <laughs> it seems like the opposite of a good philosophy for a healing ministry. All right, I healed you, but don't tell anybody I was in church. Man, no one actually paid attention to it. They still did. But he seemed to discount that as a way for people to really grow in their maturity. It was really an entry point for people. And we ought to think about that and be praying for that with people that they would really be able to experience uh, a miracle. Sometimes guys, uh, you know, the spirit's manifestation in us is simply giving us words to speak to people. And so three, we ought to always be ready to speak up. And the more you don't know what you ought to say or don't have a real clue, I mean, you shouldn't just like spit out nonsense words. Okay, that's not what tongues are. But you should be certainly ready to speak whatever the spirit may lay on your heart to say and whatever you can in your best estimation of what needs to be said and let the spirit work through the rest to be able to give a testimony to God's goodness. I think one of the main reasons why uh, we have a tough time really talking to people about faith and myself included is because we really have this idea we ought to have exactly what needs to be said uh, ready to say. But I mean, for those of us few of us who've studied some of those things and actually can articulate those things really clearly, you know how easy uh, it is for people to immediately be turned off by some theological explanation of faith? 
It's just insincere. But when someone struggles through their own understanding with the Spirit's guidance of here's how and then an honest communication, it's amazing what the Spirit can do in those situations. And it's not amazing. It's, it's pretty normal Spirit stuff. It's going to be a testimony uh, to God's goodness despite your own weakness. And so being ready to talk, that's one of the major functions of the Spirit's manifestations in the New Testament was giving the apostles words to say. And you see some of the things these guys said after the Spirit came on them, and then you go back and look at some of the dumb stuff they said when they were with Jesus, and you're like, okay, that's pretty different, instantaneous, in a very short time frame. And some of you, by doing focus on Jesus, you've experienced this, whether you've recognized it or not. Being able to clearly, uh, and not so much clearly always, but being able to honestly and authentically communicate something to someone is the Spirit's leading and guiding. So believe in miracles and pray for them. See the Spirit's power as testimony for those who don't know God. Whether that's praying for a miracle, whether that's praying that some evil presence that you feel like has been on their life for a while and needs to go away in, in Jesus' name, whether that's being able to speak up and just say what you've got in this environment or in this uh, you know, setting, no matter how it's gonna be received, can be opportunities uh, for us to do and be engaged in those mighty deeds of the Spirit. Yeah, that's what I got. I'm gonna say a prayer and then uh, we're gonna take time to do communion. And uh, for those of you who are, are new, we just have some bread. It's really wonderfully good bread that usually I think Austin Daniels, uh, Daniel makes. And, um, and then you dip it in the juice and then uh, we're loud and ruckus and that's just kind of how we do communion, celebrate. Yeah, Lord, a lot of this stuff we don't even understand or know. We're like really, really ignorant kindergartners trying to talk about physics. And um, we just ask that you would give us the just enough guidance that we need to be able to respond to you, to be able to see you working. That we wouldn't close uh, in our eyes and narrow our view so much that we just completely ignore the ways that you want to work around us. We don't want to be that church. We don't want to be those people. Uh, we want to be open and willing to appreciate you and all of your glory and diversity. And um, Lord, we just ask that you uh, would uh, continue to manifest your yourself uh, in ways that, uh, that bring glory to your name and that witness to your goodness and, and the power that you have uh, here among us. We take this communion now uh, in full recognition that Jesus, among the amazing and miraculous things that he did, uh, was a miracle worker, healed people physically, and drove out evil things within them, and gave them life that they never thought possible. We just celebrate that now as we think about him and, uh, and just honor you, God. Amen. Thanks for joining us for our sermon podcast. We would love for you to join us on Sunday morning or in one of our small groups during the week. And you can get more information about that at DentonNorthChurch.com.